I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. We need to find a more complex answer, right? And, and that complex answer is like, how do we hold everyone's humanity, our rightful anger, our rightful fear, while also still being like, okay, more violence isn't going to solve the problem. We actually need to transform who we are. Welcome to Chosen Family. I'm Trana Winter. And I'm Thomas LeBlanc. That is writer Kai Chang Tom, you just heard, who is our guest today. I'm so excited. She is one of my favorite writers. She is also my spiritual leader. <laughs> the way that Oprah reveres Eckhart Tolle is the way that I revere Kai Chang Tom, especially in this moment that we're living in right now, which is so polarizing and everyone feels at opposite ends of the spectrum. And the way that Kai Chang writes about politics and activism and transformative justice is just exactly what we need right now. She's very hard to pigeonhole. She writes fiction, essays, poetry. She writes for children. She performs. She's also a social worker, family therapist. She's, she's phenomenal. everything. And she's great on Twitter. The best. <laughs> we'll be talking to her later on in the show about cancel culture, singlehood, and even babies. Wow, my favorite subject. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> so a few episodes ago, you received a notice from your landlord. Exactly. At the end of July, someone from the building management company came to tell me, there are new owners, we're renovating, get out. And they offered cash. Yeah, they offered a little bit of cash. So basically, when these new owners took over the building and they want to get everyone out, you can't just do that. You can't just kick everyone out. You have a lease. And a lease is a contract. And my lease goes until July 2020. If you want to kick people out, you have to get them to break their lease. So you have to make an offer. So it's a trend that's happening a lot in Montreal where people are calling them renovictions because they're basically evicting people to renovate to then rent out the apartments again at a much higher price. And this is happening in a lot of other cities as well. And it's terrifying because it's making life and the basic needs that we all have so unaffordable. So I'm so against it. But my apartment wasn't worth fighting for because the building was falling apart. Literally, someone's ceiling caved in. So, like, I had to get out. How long were you in that place for? Nine years. Nine years? Yeah. That, that place must have meant a lot to you. Well, I didn't realize how much that place was a part of me until I started packing everything up. And I'm such a homebody and like having that home base and having that feeling of security sometimes is like the only thing I think that keeps me together emotionally. The last time that I felt anything like that was when I left my day job like right. three years ago and I felt like when my foundation is taken away from me, I just like, I fall apart emotionally. Yeah. And But also what's, what's so striking to me is the person you were moving into the, that apartment and the person you were leaving that apartment... Yeah. It's the same person, but also it's not. Not, I don't think it's the same person. When I moved in, I wasn't even identifying as trans. Um, I was not performing. I was working at a bank. 
And fundamentally, like my emotional self and my spiritual self was, you know, still the same. But I was still this person that was uninterested in Celine. Uh, totally uninterested <laughs> in Celine. It's so weird to look back on. It was honestly. your co- it was your literal cocoon. Yeah, that apartment was the backdrop to all of these major changes in my life and these evolutions in my life. And it, you know, I because my apartment was so small, I would spend so much time actually in the bedroom part of it and on my bed. And like right in front of my bed, there was this wall of Madonna posters and Kylie Minogue posters and Barbara Streisand posters. And it just like... You know, some people have a vision board, but it was like my whole apartment was a vision board. That is such a good image. You know, because, and I would feel so, in a weird way, like protected and sort of watched over by the women I admire. It sounds so silly, but like leaving the apartment, packing it up when everything was in boxes and that apartment felt like a person. It felt like I was saying Mm. goodbye to an actual person, like I've been single for that entire time, but in a way, it was like, you know, I don't come home to anyone, but I come home to this apartment that has a life of its own. It was so hard to say goodbye. Yeah. But now you moved into a new place. I found it through our producer, Crystal, who has friends who bought a triplex and are renting out the two apartments upstairs. Did, did they, what's the expression, renovation? Did they evict people no, to live there in? there was no one living okay, there as okay, far as I know. Fair enough, fair and enough. they're the loveliest people. Okay. And it just felt right. Because I'd seen like 10 other places. and Ten? like Hell holes. Places that I would walk into. I'm like, someone was murdered here for sure. <laughs> Um, I will be murdered here if I move in. I just get these vibes from places that I feel so strongly. Like, I know this sounds so fucking whack, but like, there is a psychic ability that I possess. (laughs) Sure. Um, So what was your feeling when you walked into that new place? It felt right. It felt like this could be home. Right. You know, I honestly, one of the things like in doing this podcast with you, especially the second season, is that you've made me realize how much I've been depriving myself of basic safety and comfort in my life because I thought that, oh, I'm so good with money. I don't spend a lot. Like, I'm so in control. But I didn't realize that I was actually depriving myself. Like, I thought, like, I thought this was such a great place. But I didn't realize how scared I was a lot. Mm. I didn't realize how cramped I was. It was such a small apartment. And because I was on the ground floor on this pretty volatile street corner, I never opened my curtains. So I never had like sunlight coming into my apartment. My curtains have been closed for nine years. And now I'm living on this street that is all trees. And I have big, bright windows in my apartment. I have space, even in just the little time that I've been at this new place. Like, I feel like my body opening up. Very interesting what you're saying, because I feel, you know, we're, we're having this big conversation right now about poverty, social inequality. And in a lot of ways, people are being kept yes. either poor or working poor by the system. Yeah. And I think we recognize that. Which is horrible, because it's like even the apartment that I have now, like, it's very basic. And yeah. it's like... 
everyone is entitled to this. But then there's also this other message that's like more, I guess, like new agey or Oprah-like that, you know, you are the master of your life and your conditions and the structures around you are only psychological chains that keep you enslaved to that condition, which there, I feel there is some value to that. Absolutely. I, but it's not, neither situation is 100%. Like we're not 100% enslaved by the systems that we're in. Um, but we're not 100% no. in control either. No, no, like, no. You can't deny. There's so many things that determine like why we are in the conditions we are. Who, who raised us, our gender, our ethnicity, yeah. our culture. I just think it's crazy that a move has made me so aware of all of these factors that you're describing and all of the things that I feel like are a limitation on me in my life. And that makes me feel sometimes stuck and scared. But at the same time, things, you know, luckily have worked out. And so I'm also filled with just gratefulness and I'm looking forward to this next chapter. I remember when humans were still trees. We wanted so much and hungered so hard. They promised us heaven. We strained for the stars. We would have swallowed them whole if we could. We forgot the language of the wind, the grace of stillness. Forgot sun songs and rain songs and kinship with birds. We fell. We fall. We kneel, are kneeling, palms pressed to the ground, praying. Let it not be too late to return to our roots. Kai Chang-Tom is a Canadian writer. She lives in Toronto. She was raised on the West Coast in Vancouver, but she also lived here in Montreal for a while. And I think it's where she... Um, really grew as a queer artist. I well, think... I remember seeing her. We used to both perform regularly <laughs> at this show called Why Am I Blanking on the Name of the Show? Gender Blender. That whole event was like this open mic where anyone could come and do anything they wanted. So it was a mix of spoken word and dance and music. It's like CBGB in like 77 or something. It kind of was. <laughs> like, it really was this hub but I remember Kai Chang always being so well received. Like people would, yeah. we would watch Kai Chang and everyone would be in awe and everyone would rush up to her after. And she was always treated as the empress of this <laughs> scene. And she's just someone who has a bit of magic. Right. You know, not everyone does. But she does in spades. She has a new book of essays and poetry. It's called I Hope We Choose Love, A Trans Girl's Notes from the End of the World. It's about the climate crisis, the political crisis, and this idea of how within the queer community, we're not always the kindest to each other. And she also addresses this very complex idea that survivors sometimes can also be abusers. We do not need to be perfect people in order to deserve kindness, sympathy, compassion, help, or healing. We do not need to have been perfect in order for our pain to matter. And once we kind of get over that, I think then we can kind of step into a more open space where we're like, all right, maybe my, um, my own experiences of trauma have you know, led me to have some coping mechanisms that are not great for other people around me. And, I, you know, I, I use the I 
hypothetically, but also literally, I'm a person who's lived through trauma and I've got some shitty coping mechanisms, right, that my friends and my, you know, loved ones have commented on. And, and you know, when, we, when it comes to solving the problem of intimate partner violence, right, or, or sexual assault, punishment can feel good in the moment. We're like, okay, this person's a perpetrator and bye, they're gone. It feels good because it's like, okay, revenge, which is nice. And then also safety, that person's gone. But we'll never actually be free of um, the specter of intimate partner violence, right? Like all the prisons and, you know, death sentences in the world have never stopped intimate violence from happening. We'll only really, I think, be able to see a huge improvement in that problem when we understand why it happens. And, you know, what I believe coming from, you know, as a community worker and, you know, a former therapist and, you know, all the other things I do is just that hurt people hurt people, that when we are in pain, we lose our ability to see and care about the pain we cause others. And that is where the danger is. That's so dead on. And I feel like when you combine that with the fact that for so many people, their idea of justice is tied to vengeance, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it feels like the way out of that cycle is almost impossible. Oh, gosh, yeah. Well, you know, we're offered some really unfortunate extreme choices in this society, which are not really choices. Like, you know, from very young, what you know, what, what kind of games do we play, especially those of us who are socialized as boys? Cops and robbers, right? Like, I, you know, talking to children who are, you know, my friends' children in life and stuff, like, they're all watching Paw Patrol. There's a police dog, <laughs> right. you know? Like, they want to put people in prison and stuff. We're, we're taught, and then all of the movies and books and stuff, like, in mainstream culture are, are about really being reverential about punishment as this way of teaching people through pain not to do bad stuff. But of course, pain doesn't teach us not to do bad stuff. It just teaches us to be afraid of punishment. Um, And so, you know, like the other kind of new agey response to violence that comes from like, I think it's like weird white spiritual culture is like, oh, we just have to forgive everyone and be super forgiving. And like, you know, what if we've experienced horrific violence? Right. right? Like, like, what about communities that have experienced genocide? Like, we're not just going to get over it. It's not our responsibility to just get over it. So, you know, we need to find a more complex answer, right? And, and that complex answer is like, how do we hold everyone's humanity, our rightful anger, our rightful fear, while also still being like, okay, you know, vi- more violence isn't going to solve the problem. We actually need to transform who we are. I still f- I, I feel like you're still hopeful that can, that can this happen. That <laughs> yeah, this you know, happen. it's really funny. As I was going around on my <laughs> tour, uh, people were like, Kaching Tom, so hopeful. What an optimist. And I was like, have you read the book? <laughs> um, the title is I Hope We Choose Love, not I right. Think We'll Choose Love. We can't not hope because we, we have to have it. Like, you know, we might yes. as well just give up. But also, it's pretty hard to have hope. Exactly. <laughs> you know, so but I feel it. like I have to choose hope. Like, I don't feel like that's my natural no, no. feeling. <laughs> you know? um, but I want to get back to a little bit about that idea of forgiveness and the way that it works, especially within cancel culture, because obviously it's something that we're seeing more Mm -hmm. and more of. And I think we're sort of used to seeing cancel culture happen to white cis men, and we're Mm -hmm. sort of glad to see them be taken down to Mm -hmm. a certain extent. Mm -hmm. But I think that we're also starting to see it more and more within our community. I mean, I don't want to like put anyone on the spot, but like even just within our own like queer comedy scene, there Mm -hmm. have been examples of sort of an entire community turning away from someone who has done, Mm -hmm. you know, bad things. Mm -hmm. Calling out, I think, fundamentally, is this idea that to 
to be active and play a role in stopping the behavior. Right. But then it becomes this like toxic virtue signaling right. experience where you're like, oh, I'm more perfect and more pure than the other person. Right, which I know that I'm not and I don't want to position myself that way. So Kai Cheng, how do you sort of navigate those moments? You know, I think a lot about the two of you are saying, especially because the two of you have experience and you're, you know, you're in queer comedy, right? And comedy is this flashpoint. Um, things that are funny, you know, quite quickly kind of land as offensive and you know, that slide is really quick. As a writer who's kind of writing about serious stuff, you know, I have a little bit more, a little bit more room, I think sometimes, but I have been fortunate to have some really great older queer, you know, colleagues and um, acquaintances in my life. And and so I'll ask them sometimes, particularly like the ones who kind of come from like the radical lesbian activist era of like the 80s and 90s, right? Um, I, I like to ask these folks, were people really, really mean to each other based on like some minor political differences? <laughs> you know? right. And the answer tends to be yes. Oh, my God. Yes. It just didn't happen on the Internet. Right. So I think the question was like, how do I navigate that? Like, how do I respond? Right. And I, I guess I feel that I have to be courageous in some way. We have to be discerning about when um, doing a call out is the brave and righteous thing, or is it maybe being bullying and not that brave? And would it maybe be braver to do a show of kindness, right? Like to reach out to that person who is, you know, uh, doing something dumb on the comedy stage and, and like, you know, kind of educating. And, you know, so I, I spent lots of time in the spoken world slam poetry scene. And, you know, like every couple slam poetry, uh, you know, competitions, there's just that some one person, right, who is new to poetry, <laughs> takes it too far, is like doing something, a poem about their ex-girlfriend, and you're like, whoa, no, that is misogynist, or you know, whatever. So, like, you know, and we could kick people out, but, um, you know, I'm a big believer in um, the power of, of, you know, little moments that, you know, mm-hmm. that when you do choose to be loving to someone who, you know, really needs it. And I would say people who are doing hurtful or, you know, dumb things really need love in that moment. They remember that forever, forever, forever. And and it becomes a part of them and, and maybe they pass it on. And, and slowly, slowly, we start to grow that ethic. Bringing that back to the idea of transformative justice and the idea of examining, can there be a transformation? Can something be learned? To that end... I feel like it's something that culturally and collectively we have a forgiveness is something we have a really hard time with oh, yeah. because once we've vilified someone, we sort of want to keep them as that enemy yeah. in our mind. We've all experienced trauma. We've all developed bad coping mechanisms. We we can be really sorry. And I feel like now we're also judging people's apologies. And at, cer- at a certain point, well, I'm just like, what perf- is good enough? There is the performance of apology yes. also. That's, you know, that's... Which I think sometimes is pretty obvious. Yeah. Yeah. But I think sometimes there is genuine apology that seems to be overlooked as well. And I'm just curious about what your take is on what does atoning or being accountable mean? Because it's just words that we throw out. But concretely, what does that mean? What does that look like? Mm. I love this. I love this. It's it's something I think about every day, actually, um, because I'm intense like that. <laughs> <laughs> What's your sign, Kai Chang? I'm a Pisces. Of course. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, Leo rising, of course. So, you know, it's just like, uh-huh. wake up, get the coffee. What would real forgiveness be? <laughs> um, you know, like I... Okay, so first of all, I love that the two of you are talking about cancel culture in such kind of frank terms. Um, because, you know, there's a lot of pushback I'm seeing on Twitter where people are like, cancel culture doesn't exist. I'm like, no, I think it does exist. I think it affects different people differently. So, you know, mm-hmm. Louis C.K. might, you know, already be on his comeback tour and it might be awful. I don't know. But like... um. 
But like that's a wealthy white guy, right? And if we're talking about, you know, some, you know, trans woman sex worker who is also a comedian, like who might might get called out and then lose access to comedy, that's like a forever loss. It's not like Louis C.K. Exactly. Right? So like people who are vulnerable are the ones who punishment really affects, and then the powerful have the ability to shrug off punishment in different ways. So I just wanted to kind of highlight that. And yes. then second, you know, like I get really quite upset in, in my in my stomach, in my body when I when I see um that kind of really intense um judgment of apology. And and for sure, you know, some apologies just feel gross and like mm-hmm. I'm like, oh that's not an apology, you know. <laughs> yeah. But um you know, it takes a lot of courage to apologize uh, in, in a way that, that's genuine and sincere. And I think we can see true humility and, and, and maybe we choose not to acknowledge it because we, we want to continue enjoying the punishment piece or because we, we, we don't feel that vengeance, you know, like we, we, we don't want to like um, let go of that. We're like, oh, well, if you apologize sincerely, then maybe we'll forgive you. And, and then forgiveness leads to, you know, more <laughs> bad stuff or, you know, forgiveness, you know, is, is too soon or whatever. So... Like, um, I don't like that. I, 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 just, I just hate it, honestly. What would a real apology look like? Well, I think a real apology, honestly, I think it's very difficult to do one in public um, because, uh, like, the, the doing it in front of, like, the gaze of everyone else. G-A-Z-E. Yeah. Okay, right. <laughs> yes, also, but also the gaze. In front of all the gays. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, like, when we apologize in public, then it's really hard for the person you're apologizing to, to trust that... Um, you know, like it, it's not just so that everyone sees the optics of it. That's, you know, an unfortunate piece of, of the world we live in today. So if we're going to do apology, I would say like, yes, OK, so maybe public apology is appropriate sometimes. But but almost always we need to, you know, match that with a private apology so that, you know, um, someone can, can, you know, for lack of better expression, like see who are our true colors, right? Like who we are when when no one is watching. Also, I think not expecting forgiveness is a big one, like not mm. demanding or asking um, like, you know, being like, oh, I hope that someday you can forgive me is like, that's about me, right? Like mm-hmm. <laughs> people who are upset with me don't necessarily ever need to forgive me. What I do hope is that somehow my actions will show that I understand um, how I've hurt others. And that part of the apology is the part that happens after. And it's how we, we live in our words, you know, um, following apology. I think a lot about Zuko, the character Zuko in Avatar The Last Airbender. I don't know if you watch that show. No. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I'm not going to go into nerding out about it now. But, but it, is that it, an example of a good apology? No, or... because he like, um, you know, he has so many chances to kind of redeem himself and he fucks them all up. And um, <laughs> But he does have a redemption arc and it takes all three seasons of that um, original show. And that's what I think about like um, true apology is that it. There's the words we say in the moment, and then mm. there's like three years or like a hundred years of like taking that into our soul and showing through our actions that we are we are embracing our better selves. It, it really brings me back to the idea of amending also. You know, 12-step recovery is a big part of my life, and the apology is kind of secondary. It's right. really about changing the actions. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I, I had someone recently come to me with like a, I need you to to accept my, my 12-step amends, and I was like, oh. Nope, I don't ever want to see you again, actually. But, but I wish <laughs> you well, right? Yeah, right? That person was pushing it on you. And that's always something I found tricky with that process. Right, it's like yeah. sort of reaching out to people who might not want to hear, hear what you have you. to say. Yeah. Think of your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now, what if we could fix it? 
I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Delon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. In your book, you talk about the concept of chosen family. And I don't know if it's just since we started the show, like, obviously, we did not invent the term. But I just feel like it is being used way more than ever right <laughs> All now. The freaking like, time. I'm like, what is happening? And <laughs> there's an excerpt from your book that everyone can read on the Walrus website. It's titled Why I Hate Babies, <laughs> um, yes. which is quite a title. You know, you describe this idea of like, the radical queer dream and what mm. that could mean and how we could live differently. And that that's something that we've imagined building with our queer chosen families. And it seems like something that's been abandoned as a lot of the people who have been part of our queer chosen families have gotten married and have had children and are sort of living lives that resemble a kind of heteronormativity. Yes. Um, do you think that the queer community has become a bit too idealistic about chosen families and what we get from them. Oh, hell yes. Yes, 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 yes. Oh my gosh, yes. And I'm I'm just as guilty of that as 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 you know the next like a radical queer right like I, I think a lot about um, the writer Sarah Schulman herself a, yeah. a controversial figure who she writes about how the notion of chosen family is terrifying to her she explores how um, you know biological family um, is the site of queer trauma through homophobia and rejection and and intimate violence and all this kind of stuff so so then she so she goes like why would we want to replicate that <laughs> with our with, with our friends it's like, why don't we just call them our friends? <laughs> and, right. um, you know, when I, I was kind of coming up as a late, late in my teens and early 20s, I was like, oh, yeah, my queer chosen family is going to, you know, we're going to run away and start a queer farm. I have never, ever worked on a farm. <laughs> <laughs> I would not be capable. <laughs> or, or trans vigilante, as, as you did in your first book. Or trans vigilantes. Yeah. Well, well, that I may or may not have done. But, um, <laughs> you know, like... Um, like, yeah, like we're, we were going to do all these kind of radical things and like, you know, form anarchist cells to resist the government, which which I for the legal record, I am not doing. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, like, yeah, and, and it's, it asks a lot. And, it you know, if we, now that you're asking me this question, which I think is such a good one, like I, I'm reflecting on how my biological family migrants, um, well, my dad's a migrant, my mom is like a second gen, um, I'm also kind of uh, pushing um, to survive against the mainstream. I'm also demanded a lot, right? You know, uh, conservatism and um, extreme hardworkingness and like academic achievement and, and living up to certain notions of like what it meant to honor the family. And then my queer chosen family um, demanded a lot too, right? Like ideological purity, um, like giving up a lot of things. And so we project a lot into the notion of chosen family. Um, I certainly did. Like, I mean, you can tell when I still feel betrayed when someone, when a friend is like, I'm having a baby. I'm like, my first thought is, how dare you? I know. <laughs> Mine too. Whenever anyone gets engaged, it's my first thought. Like, 
I would just want to read this part that you wrote. So what does it mean to be a part of a chosen family when it must abide by biological and legal families? That mm. is to say, if my chosen queer siblings get married and has a baby, where do I fit in? Mm-hmm. Is chosen family another way of saying second best family? Yeah. And that really hit home for me. And I think mm. it also hits home for a lot of cisgendered women who don't get married and don't have kids while oh, yeah. all their friends do. And I'm just curious how you navigate that sort of balance between self-protection and being a freely loving mm. person. Well, oh my Because I feel like that's something that's so hard for me still is like, I'm so scared of getting hurt that like, I'd rather just sort of cocoon and like, I'll take mm. care of myself. But mm-hmm. I know that that isolation makes life so much harder. Oh my God, you're speaking like the words of my soul right now. Like, <laughs> can I ask, how, how old are you? Trina. Oh my god! I try to keep. I'll tell you after the okay. show. Yeah. Okay. But, or, we'll say like. Um, like but we're around of, the same age. Yeah. Like we're, same we're, range of not, millennial. Yeah, exactly. Like we grew up a little bit without the internet. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, I, I'll say this. Like, I, I, for me, I was like, I, I've been thinking for like five years or so. Like, what does it mean to be an adult with friends? And I think what I needed to learn, and I'm still sort of forcing myself to learn it, is like, um, people go where they go. You yeah. Know? And 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 you share beautiful intense moments of intimacy with your queer friends and chosen family and then someday that intimacy lessens and and you know big causes for that are, are having babies and, and, and getting married and, and politically you know I think I have a right to wish they wouldn't um, <laughs> you know get married anyway babies yeah. is like a different thing but like you know p- people make those choices and um, you know there's it, there's not much like we can't want to control other people's lives, even as yeah. <laughs> even as we can also say we miss them. And that's my part, like right. uh, where I'm like, OK, I have to grow to be able to love someone and, and realize like I really have to internalize that because someone is moving into a new phase of their life, which, you know, maybe I play a more peripheral role. It doesn't mean that the intimacy we shared wasn't real. Right. Then also trying to like what I need my friends to recognize. And I I think I'm getting better at kind of gracefully imparting this is like is just to not pretend like don't pretend that, you know, if you're about to have a baby um, that we're going to have the same level of intimacy. It's Mm -hmm. just not true. Like and and also like as a former family therapist, what I would say is that would also maybe like not be the best parenting choice. right? Like if if we were going to like prioritize our friends over our babies. Right. And and almost no parent does that. Right. Right. and like, yes, for sure, I um, also offer to babysit and I bring, I got, just the other day, I like got up really early to make like a, a stew so that my friend who had a baby could put it in their freezer, you know? Like, I try to be a good friend in that way. And there is a new kind of intimacy in that um, as well. I um, I don't know about you, Trana, but I really lean into the like... Um, like the trans women's like ancient role, like I actually go and bless babies when they're born. Right. Um, well, I just became an aunt for the first time. Yeah, you gotta um, bless that baby. <laughs> and I love her to pieces. Like, right? oh my god, she's my muffin. Like, yes. I adore her. Um, and strangely, I think me and my sister have actually gotten even closer, although yes. we were close to start with. There was a part of me that was very terrified of what will this mean for my relationship with my sister. Well, there's something beautiful in you and your sister being so different, but also agreeing to work on keeping that bond. Yeah. I guess what it comes down to for me is that, like, as much as, yes, absolutely, like, people are going to go where they're going to go. I feel like, and I think this is something that emerges in in what I've been reading by you, Kai Chang, is, like, Mm -hmm. you sort of set up this opposition between, like, the radical dream of the queer utopia and the sort of, like, safety of heteronormal 
normativity and wanting mm-hmm. a sort of basic husband and having a kid. And oh yeah, <laughs> but can we have both? Like sometimes I think like you know when these people, when these members of our chosen family go off and get married and have kids, why can't you still also remain connected to the radical? Is it possible? I think it is possible. Um, I think it really relies on everyone staying in that kind of open frame of mind and like. Like, I actually believe that, like, you know, um, we as, like, uh, currently unmarried, you know, like, currently not uh, child-raising uh, queer people, like, we, we could play a huge role, right? And and we would have to change our role from being, like, friend to also, like, friend who is helping to raise a child or parent. Um, and it's much, you know, it's very difficult to do that. But I do believe that, yes, we could... Um, have we, we could have like you know a, s- a secure family life and be connected to the radical and of course like you know again like going back to indigenous communities here in North America but also all around the world like you know the truly traditional model of family before the nuclear family was not um, like one of like nuclear separation like you know every family member did play a role every generation was important and you know having been um you know, someone who worked really closely with families. Like, I see that gap here in North America where, like, it is the nuclear family because the truth is um, children who are growing up need adults who are not their parents um, <laughs> to, yes. like, vent with or, you know, maybe get safe education about sex and intimacy with. Like, you know, like, when you're a teenager, you don't want to go to your mom and ask, like, about sex, but you do want to go to your cool trans aunt to ask those questions, right? Well, I'm hoping to be that person for them to, to like... I'm like, God, I, I want to be her favorite adult, yes, you know? Yes. Oh, my God. Well, it's so much easier to be the favorite when you're the cool aunt. Yeah. So, like, you, you just live in it. Yeah. Well, I just want to thank you so much, Kai Chang. If anyone can inspire us each to choose love, it is you. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Kai Chang Tom. You can find Kai Cheng's latest book, I Hope We Choose Love, at bookstores across North America or online at arsenalpulp.com. Obsession. Obsession. What are you obsessed with? What am I obsessed with? What are you obsessed with, Thomas? I'm obsessed with a machine. It's called a Pilates reformer machine. It's a it's it's a it's a it's a wooden. It's like a bed, right? So where you can do Pilates exercises that are, that are really good for your core. And I discovered that through Gelman's Instagram. So Gelman, for people who don't know, he's the producer of. Kelly and Ryan live. He's been there for a long time. He was there back when it was Regis and Kathy Lee. <laughs> I mean, I can still hear Regis's voice in my head yelling, Galman. I mean, that's kind of our dream to host like a mid-morning yes. show. So I feel like Biggest Galman, dream. that's why I follow Galman on Instagram. He oh, posts, you actually follow him? Oh, I follow Galman on Instagram. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so Galman is like this guy, I guess, in his like late 50s, early 60s. And to stay in shape, he does these exercises on this like basically bed with like a part that's like sliding where you could do like really hard like core exercises i'm i'm a sucker for aspirational content i know so i've tried it last week so i took like a private class with um this very sweet instructor she's obviously a dancer and she was like showing me the machine it's like it's basically resistance based so you can you have different resistances and then you you go on the bed and you like you you push and then like you lift your legs you lift your legs and you lift your (laughs) arms and in that moment i felt like madonna in american life (laughs) (laughs) oh my god i'm drinking a soy latte i get a double (laughs) shot it goes into my body (laughs) 
And you know I'm satisfied. Oh my god! Because in the song she says she does yoga and Pilates in the room is full of there bodies. You so I'm go. checking out the bodies, and you know I'm satisfied. Were you satisfied? I was pretty satisfied. <laughs> I was pretty satisfied because I'm on this like fitness journey. Yeah. Um, I've tried CrossFit. I've tried going to the gym. CrossFit I like. I right. Have reservations. I mean, I do get the appeal. Like I do. Like there. Of course, it is aspirational. It's like wow, it would be really great to feel so good about my body. But it's like, you know. Poor people don't have time. And when I say poor people, I include myself in that. <laughs> we do not have time to exercise like that. And it's just like, yeah, we would all look like that if well, we had time and money. I love I love to go to a workout at noon or 3 p.m. and pretend I don't have to work during the day. It's like <laughs> one of my favorite things. So anyways, I go to that studio and I want to bring you. Oh, I'm never going. I really want you to come. We really have to try to exercise, film, like film and post the video of us doing the reformer Pilates. I mean, I'll do it in the name of like content. In the name of content. But I'm not doing it earnestly. (laughs) Like I never have. I've never exercised earnestly in my life. Like even in gym class, like, you know, like we'd be taught something like how to lift whatever weight and i'm like what i don't know how to do it how do you react when you read about like a celebrity's um fitness routine i'm more interested in their skincare routine which is another kind of like obsession insanity you know i guess like our obsessions kind of cross at victoria beckham yes that she's the intersection she is the intersection of that of our obsession because there was this profile at the beginning of the year where she would describe her day she wakes up like super early yeah she exercises and it's her tv time right when she exercises as she yes, watches of course. Shows, it's the only says. time. Yeah, I was so triggered by that article. We'll I post, just we'll like, post it in the group. Yeah, we will. And I'll also share. There's a video because uh, Jennifer Lopez has a YouTube channel now, <laughs> and <laughs> she she films behind the scenes of like everything, and right. she filmed behind the scenes of like her getting ready for the Met Gala. And I'm not even kidding. There's like a team of eight people that arrive in the morning. It's like it's like a pit stop at a car race. They're like buffing her and like sanding her <laughs> down and waxing her and like putting her in alignment. And like, you know, it takes a fucking team of eight people. That's why it's so ridiculous for us to be at home and watching the stuff on Instagram, thinking there's even a chance that we can do that. It's not possible. It's not possible. It's not but possible. I'm still, I still believe it. I'm an optimist. You're not, but no, I am. I'm not. Okay, well, I have to go. I have to go take a Pilates lesson on the reformer machine. Have fun. <laughs> Everyone listening, you have to follow Gelman on Instagram at Gelman Live. You'll really see the miracle that the reformer machine can do on an aging white guy's body. Chosen Family is produced by me, Thomas LeBlanc. And me, Trana Winter, with Crystal Duhame. Crystal also edits and mixes the show. Chosen Family's music is by The Lost Boys. Judy Tsigu is our digital producer. Tanya Springer is the senior producer of CBC Podcasts. And Arif Narani is the executive producer. And if you haven't already, you have to join our Facebook group. Come on, people! Chosen Family is a CBC podcast originally developed in association with Phi Studio. Listen to Chosen Family wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're in Montreal on November 21st, please come see us at the RIDM Documentary Film Festival. You have to come down. Yeah, we just love to see you guys. These recordings in person are a whole other experience. And our friends Cave Boy will also be doing a musical performance. So, like, really, you got to come down. We'll post the event link and all the information you need in the Facebook group.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.